God is good all the time. Jerusalem, circa 33 AD. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre almost certainly marks the spot. It's late in the afternoon on a Friday, the day before the Sabbath that would usher in the Passover. Three men were dead on three crosses that stood on a hill just outside of those ancient city gates. They'd all died of asphyxiation. Their wrists had been nailed to a cross with iron stakes. And after a while, you can't support the weight of your body anymore. Your trachea becomes occluded. And when you can't breathe, you die. Two had their legs broken with mallets by the Roman crucifixion detail to hasten their deaths. Their bodies were slumping. Their legs were mangled. Probably compound fractures exposed. They hung grotesquely. The man in the middle had died long before. He was a bloody mess compared to the other two due to a vicious scourging that he had taken. But despite the pock marks in his abdomen from a Roman lead-tipped whip called a cat of nine tails, his body was essentially intact. Above his cross was nailed a placard that announced to the world his crime, King of the Jews. It was written in Latin, in Greek, in Hebrew. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. As the sun was sinking in the western sky behind the city walls, two powerful Jews, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were in a race against time. Their mission was to gain legal access to the body of Jesus from the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Take him down from the cross, wrap him in linen, rush him to Joseph's tomb, lay him on a stone sepulcher, seal the opening. Failure to complete the process by sundown would make them ceremonially unclean. By touching a dead body, and they would have to miss the Passover. Jewish leaders didn't miss the Passover. The plan was that when the Passover was concluded at sunrise on Sunday morning, some of Jesus' female disciples would return, properly wash and prepare his body. And after that, the body would be left to decompose. Friends and family would mourn for seven days. The disciples would renegotiate the last three years. And life would go on. Because that's what life does. But clearly, someone forgot to inform Jesus of the plan. Verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were the leaders of the female disciples. We don't know nearly enough about these women. But we do know that Mary had been delivered of demons by Jesus. That means she was not in her right mind. And after she met Jesus, 
She was put in her right mind. She also seems to have been enfranchised. She's from the town of Magdala in the Galilee. She didn't just follow Jesus while he was on the miracles and wonder tour. She also stayed with him through the crucifixion. And she wept at the foot of the cross. She was front and center when so many others had run away. She is the first to the tomb. Jesus had released her from the grip of Satan himself. And she ordered her life in response to that reality. According to the Greek word that John uses here, Mary arrived sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Clearly it would still be dark and she would be waiting for morning to break. High-end tombs in Jerusalem, like the one in which Jesus was buried, were normally chipped into stone face walls, or in this case, chipped into walls of ancient rock quarries. You chipped it out, you made a man-made cave. They would be used over and over. A dead body would be placed upon the stone called a sepulcher. You'd wrap the body in linen, you would pack it with spices. And after a year or so, when the deceased had decomposed, their bones would be put in a box, labeled and stored in the back. A large round stone in a carved track would guard the entrance. They found many such first century tombs in and around Jerusalem. The stone fit snugly and it could be sealed. These huge stones normally took at least a couple of men to roll away. So Mary approaches the tomb just to be near Jesus. There's no realistic expectation she's going to be able to do anything until help arrives to roll away the stone. When the sun offered enough light to get a visual, Mary's senses are absolutely overwhelmed. What she sees is the last thing in the world she ever thought she would see. The stone has been rolled away. And what happened to her is what happens to all of us when we're on sensory overload. Adrenaline just kicks in. And since there was no one to fight, Mary went to flight. And she ran to get Peter and John. Verse 2. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple. John always refers to himself in this way. The one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Though all the disciples were distraught, nobody could have been more upset than Peter. Peter had publicly denied Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest. He had fallen the furthest. During Jesus' life, Peter had enjoyed many praises from Jesus and also many rebukes. He was resilient. Denial or not, Peter still appears to have been a leader. It was to Peter and John that Mary delivers not good news, but unsettling news. Mary made a most logical but an incorrect inference. She thought someone had taken the body. And before we get too hard on Mary, let's just face it, folks. If you were on your way to attend a funeral and you were informed that the body was missing, 
you would consider a world of possibilities before landing on resurrection. We also know that body thefts just didn't happen in Israel like they did in neighboring Egypt, mainly because the Jews didn't bury people's possessions with them. There's nothing for a tomb robber to rob. And even if they did, Jesus wouldn't have had anything anyway. The other thing we know is if somebody did take the body, it wasn't the three most likely suspects, Mary, Peter, and John. Verse 3, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John notes that he outran Peter. (laughs) I like it a lot. I'm old school. If you're going to play, there really needs to be a winner. (laughs) Peter and John are opposites. Peter is a blustery guy who's run by emotion. John is a thoughtful guy who's governed by intellect. Peter is older, John is younger. Peter is stronger, John is faster. Peter is a heart, John is a head. And both were leaders in the early church. I love the fact that resurrection comes to the blustery and the thoughtful, to the older and the younger, to the faster and the slower. Resurrection reaches into our heads and it reaches into our hearts. It's for both the Johns and the Peters of this world. Verse 5, John stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Anybody else kind of get John here? Is there anybody else that's just a little more cautious by nature? John is in a race. He's running to see something. His adrenaline's kicked in. And all he's thinking while he's running is, I need to beat Peter. Peter, if he beats me, he will never shut up about it because Peter never shuts up anyway. I really need to beat him. And then they start getting near the tomb and John's thinking, wow, do I really want to go in first? I get it. My last two years of high school, my first couple years of college, I was a security guard at the Duquoin State Fairgrounds. Anybody ever been to the Duquoin State Fairgrounds? Vacation, that kind of thing, perfect. I was a security guard, and part of my job was to drive around, and then in the middle of every night, I had to walk through the grandstand. You guys ever been to the grandstand? Underneath the grandstand, I had to walk the grandstand, make sure everything was locked, and that kind of stuff. It was a pretty boring job, but it it was what I did. And so one night, I was walking through the grandstand, and I jumped somebody. Somebody was there. I have no idea what they were doing. We're probably 3 a.m., And I mean, they just take off. They're probably 20 yards ahead of me. I'm 19 years old. I start chasing them. And I was fast when I was 19 years old. I am running. I'm gaining on them. And while I'm running, I'm starting to think, what am I going to do if I catch them? (laughs) Clearly, I'm faster. I'm not sure I'm stronger. They may have a gun. They may have a knife. I have a walkie-talkie that doesn't work. Would it surprise you to find out they got away? John is running to the tomb. Eh, kind of pulls up at the end. Verse 6, then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other 
wrappings. John, if you look at the Greek carefully, John is solving a mystery here. According to the way the Greek words are used, Peter found the grave clothes still in place. The linen that they wrapped around Jesus, it looked as if Jesus' body had simply evaporated and the linens just fell. There would have been a mountain of spices, some still in the linen, some off to the side. And as odd as it seems, the tomb would have smelled great. We know from the narrative that it was cold, so Jesus' body would show no possible hint of decomposing. The head covering was neatly folded. There was one final element to the case of the missing body. No one would go to the trouble to unwrap a dead body before taking it. What are you going to do with a naked, dead body? And on the other hand, even if they did, they wouldn't perfectly wrap the linens back up as if the body were still in it. Verse 8. Then the disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. You know, there's an unavoidable limitation to finitude. We only know what we know. You know people in your life who are often wrong but never uncertain? I know a lot of them. They have not embraced the limitations of finitude. They don't know it, but they only know what they know. Have you ever had something occur that seemed to have happened out of nowhere? And then you begin to think back and put the pieces together and you start to wonder how you missed it? That's what happened here. John did some forensics. There's no plausible explanation for the body to be gone. There's simply no motive. To him, the wrappings being left behind in the way they were is hard evidence. And he goes to some detail to accurately describe them. Feels like a police report. The only possible motive for a body theft would be a faked resurrection. And the only people who would benefit from that would be the disciples. And if the disciples had staged a fake resurrection, Mary, Peter, and John would have known. And secondly, Jesus had given many clear indications about all of this. But the disciples missed them somehow. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to hear things you don't want to hear suddenly the things that Jesus had said were coming back to mind keep in mind John wrote this gospel four or five decades after the event and when he wrote the gospel all of this stuff was hardwired into his text from the start so when we read the gospel of John the resurrection is impossible to miss but make no mistake When it came in real time, the disciples were not expecting Jesus to raise from the dead. And that being said, when John went in, the text said he believed. And we got to ask ourselves, believed what? He believed God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Everything he was, his mind that he possessed... The three years he had spent with Jesus and the circumstantial evidence lying before him all collided in a moment and faith welled up in John. 
Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith welled up in John and he believed. We can hear the Easter story a thousand times, but until we believe it, it doesn't become our own. And until we receive it, it doesn't transform us. And then it says, and then they went home. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't just hang around the cemetery all day. People think you're a weirdo. What do you do? They went home. There is that, isn't there? No matter what you see, no matter what God does in your heart, you always have to go home. How many of you went to church camp when you were a kid? You guys remember church camp? Church camp was always awesome. You're just around Christian people, and it's this kind of Jesus-saturated thing. And with the exception of the food, it's a pretty good experience, right? You go to lots of meetings, and, and you get saved like every morning, afternoon, and evening for five consecutive days. And, and, and it's great. It's like, it's like your Jesus balloon, man. It's like every day it's getting blown up. You got your Jesus balloon going, and, and man, you get thinking, wow, this is great. I, I might be the best Christian ever. And you're kind of there, and then all of a sudden, it's over. They have the final service, and you got to go home to all your heathen friends. <laughs> and all the people that aren't real excited when you talk about Jesus. And they don't pray for you. When you have a problem, they say, suck it up, kid, and go away. And all of a sudden, you find out it wasn't a balloon at all. It's a whoopee cushion. (laughs) And the great rump of life is just sit down on it. And every good thing that happened in you sort of goes. (laughs) But you get it, don't you? You ever been to a great worship service? And then you have to go home, right? can't stay here forever. I know people who've really encountered God. Didn't last for a hundred yards. They got out on the parkway, somebody pulled out in front of them, the whole thing was gone. (laughs) I just want to suggest that Easter gives us a faith we can take home. Not just something we own when we're here, but something we can actually take home with us. Because you always got to go back home. Peter and John had thought it was all over. When Jesus cried, it is finished, they thought it was over. And in this moment, they had to ask themselves a question. What if this is not the end? What if this is just the beginning? And I'd like to ask you that question today as well. Maybe you gave up on God. Maybe you gave up on church Maybe you've given up on ever having a rich and a wonderful life of faith. Maybe you've just given up on yourself. And maybe you're just here today because you're one of six Americans who still comes on Easter out of duty, guilt, and obligation. Maybe somebody that you care about invited you and you didn't know how to say no. But here you are. And you honestly thought it was all over. I just want to suggest to you, what if it's just beginning? I would like to suggest that today is an opportunity for you to start a new walk with Christ. And like all opportunities, you can take it or leave it. 
I'm not going to sit here and scream and yell at you. I got to preach one more time, so I've already done four. I'm not going to scream and yell at you. I'm not going to thump you overhead with the Bible. You'll just have a headache and it won't change anything. You can take this opportunity or leave it. We're doing something here called the 500. We're inviting people to church. And I've gotten in the most wonderful conversations over the past few weeks. But I had a conversation with a young adult a couple weeks ago. It went something like this. They said to me, I've had issues with the church and with Jesus my whole life. My whole adult life. And it's gotten me nowhere. The church does fine without me. And other people who have been through exactly what I've been through seem to be all healed up and doing fine. And every week I feel like I'm missing something important. And it feels like it's time to move past my issues. This isn't hurting anybody but me. I need a new start. Do you need a new start? I would like to offer that a new start is made available to you and to me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will give us a new start. I was raised in the 70s, toward the late 70s. I was a teenager. And for you that are younger, this is going to seem really weird to you. But when we were teenagers and children, our parents had no idea where we were ever and no way to contact us. <laughs> None. You say, I bet you were responsible. No, it was nothing like that. <laughs> well, one of the things we did is we played a lot of sports. But when I say sports, our parents didn't have to pay. There were no coaches. There were no travel games. There were actually no fields. Well, we did have a football field. It's just unfortunately they put a lot of tombstones all around it because there was a lot in the IOOF cemetery where we played a lot of football. And every now and then we'd have a contested play because we had no officials. And so there would be a pass interference play. And two people would be jawing about it. You hit me before the ball got there. No, I didn't. I hit you the second the ball got there. And usually it could de-escalate. Somebody would say, no, nah, I think he's right. I think he's right. But sometimes you just have two guys, 17 years old, just jawing at each other. And then one of them would just have enough and they just, just kind of chuck the other guy. I think that's called assault now. We used to call that a Tuesday. And so <laughs> kind of chuck the guy and this other guy just kind of chucks him back. And before long, you're just kind of standing there, man. You just stand there, and then somebody with sense would walk in. That was usually me. And I'd walk in, and I'd say, hey, guys, why don't we just do a do-over? They would kind of calm back down, and eventually we'd just play the play over. You ever wish you could get a do-over? You ever wish you could find forgiveness for your sin? You ever wish that somehow... You could live a life where you're not defined by the single dumbest thing you ever did. Do you ever wish you could start anew? That's what Easter gives us, an opportunity. Let me share six quick opportunities with you that Easter presents. Number one, an opportunity to receive Christ. Christianity isn't something you did, it's something you are. It's not religion 
It's a relationship with God made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've never received Christ, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Number two, maybe you just need to rededicate your life. You, you know it's there, but you've just drifted away. I just want to give you an opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm back. And I want you to know that if you come back, he'll be waiting with arms wide open. Number three, I want to encourage you to bring your needs to Christ. Whatever it is that's weighing you down, whatever it is that's on your mind today, just bring it to Christ. I got noticed in a few years ago that a lot of people come to church hurting and then they leave church hurting. And it occurred to me, we're going to have to do better than that. We're going to have to pray for each other and care about each other. Number four, I want to invite you to move past your issues. Just kind of think of all your issues as a backpack. And all the hurt and betrayals and disappointment and all these things that have happened in your life, you just keep putting them in the backpack. And before long, you wonder why you don't run very fast. And then you discover your backpack weighs 400 pounds. I just want to suggest to you, why don't you just leave all that here? Why don't you just... Leave your issues. How are they working for you? Where are they getting you? Just decide today's the day. You're going to dump your issues at the altar. Number five, I want to give you an opportunity just to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are Christians, but they don't have joy and they don't have passion. And they don't have this this energy about them that wants to share the gospel. They wish they did. They see others that do. I just want to suggest to you that the Holy Spirit gives us those things. And maybe you're already a Christian. You just need to open yourself up for the Spirit to enter your life. And then number six, I just want to encourage you to take the next step with Christ, whatever that is. Whatever that is. I had another conversation with a young adult that I invited to church. When I handed the card, she said, I've been to that church a couple times. It's great. And I, I said, well, wonderful. Please come back and see us. And she smiled and I smiled. And then something occurred to me. I think a lot of us church people, we think if people come to church and it's great, that means they will come back. And I don't think it's necessarily true. So I want to throw something at you. I believe that church adds value to life. And I believe that if you will come to church for a few weeks, that you will be in a better place mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. I believe that when we come to church, we connect with each other in community. We connect with God. And things happen here that don't happen anywhere else. It's like getting your phone charged. And it gives us the strength to go on. So if you're our guest today, I want you to know how glad we are you're here. But I want to invite you to come back. And just see if it doesn't make a difference in your life. Whatever your next step is, I invite you to take it. 
We're going to pray an Easter prayer together. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me if you're comfortable doing that. And then we're going to make a proclamation as we close. Open your hearts for a moment. Take a deep breath. Contemplate on the goodness of God. And repeat after me as we pray. Resurrecting God. Thank you for loving me. I ask your forgiveness for my sin. Jesus, fill my life. Fresh and new. Unleash your Holy Spirit in me. I give my whole life to you. I bring my needs to you. I leave my issues with you. This is my new star. I pray all this in your strong name. Amen. We are a confessing people. The Bible says we confess with our mouth unto salvation. So let's close this part of the service with confession. I'll say a confession, you repeat it. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am filled. I am delivered. I am saved. I am whole. I am a Christian. Almighty God, do in each of us what only you can do. And if there are those here that would like some special prayer from a human that believes in prayer, we just pray that you'd put in their hearts to come on up and get that. Thank you that Jesus came out of that grave. And in faith, we believe it and will order our lives in response. In Jesus' strong name, amen. There's going to be some folks on both sides of me, both ends of the balcony. If you've got something going on in your life that you'd just like somebody to pray for you, there's nothing they would rather do than that. Let's stand and let's worship this risen Christ.